This is R.J. Rushdooney, Easy Chair Number 27, September 16, 1982. Recently, I discussed with you some of the problems created in Missouri by Wayne Kreitz. Wayne Kreitz was the farmer who headed a group of farmers who broke into a bankrupt grain elevator to take their own grain back. Kreitz was arrested, was heavily fined, and has created quite a stir. In fact, he testified before Congress recently. The, the amazing fact is that many people have felt that Wayne Kreitz broke the law and therefore he should be punished. But the fact is, the bankruptcy laws are defective, seriously defective in this case. Let us suppose that you go to work downtown, that you park your car in a parking garage next door. You park it at 7.30 in the morning. At 10.30, the parking garage goes bankrupt and an official comes along and seals off the garage and treats your car and every other car that is in there as a part of the assets of the bankrupt company. Now, that's exactly what happened to these farmers. And the whole point is, of course, that the laws are bad, the judges are bad, and Congress, the House in this case, is very, very wrong in its attitude. Senator Dole, and I hold no brief for him normally, has introduced an attack, uh, a measure to change the uh, ban bankruptcy uh, uh, law. However, although the Dole Act has three times passed the Senate, Representative Peter Rodino, Jr. has refused to do anything about it in the House. He was the chief architect of the Bankruptcy Act of 1978. He offers, instead of the uh, Dole Act, his own very, very mild measure which actually changes nothing and offers no protection to anyone whose grain or whose car or what have you is caught in an, another building that is involved in a bankruptcy. Now, this is a very important point because it brings up something that's happening, especially as it affects farmers. I use the analogy of cars being caught in a parking garage. I don't think any judge would seal up that parking garage with the cars in it. And yet the farmers pay rent, they store their grain in an elevator, the elevator goes bankrupt, and their grain is tied up indefinitely. What has happened is that the farmer is now the target of all kinds of discrimination. There was a time when the farmer was in the majority in the United States.
even during my own childhood, 52% of Americans were born in the small town and rural areas. They did not live there. They migrated very quickly to the cities where most of the population was. But it was still the area with the greatest population growth, and it was feeding the cities. It still does to a certain extent, but not to the same degree. Well, what has happened since World War II is that the farmer has lost his clout politically. The end of World War II, we still were somewhat farm-oriented, and all kinds of subsidies were gained by the farm interests, none of which I agree with. But the point is, they were still politically powerful. Now their power, compared to what it once was, is really minor. And the result is, the farmer is increasingly suffering precisely because we are ruled by majorities, whether we like it or not. Majorities win elections. The farmer gets very little representation. He makes up something like 8% or less of the population, he and his family. When you take the adults in farming, discounting their children, because they do tend still to have more children, their percentage in the voting population is rather slight. As a result, we have a curious fact that has developed in every country where you have representative government. The farmer has never been more important than he is now, particularly in the United States. As his numbers have decreased, his productivity has increased phenomenally. The American farmer today is the most productive single unit in the world, the family farmer. The family farm, still per acre, produces far more than any other kind of farming unit, including the large corporate farm. So he is most essential to the economy. Our favorable balance of trade with regard to food is an important part of our economic picture. We do ship out a tremendous volume of food to all the world. We are the world's breadbasket right now. And yet, because he has decreased numerically, the farmer gets next to no consideration in Congress. The result is, especially as estate taxes and inheritance taxes have increased, the family farmer is facing extinction. Up until a few years ago, the corporate farmer still got a break, but now he no longer gets the break he once did. So both the family farm and the corporate farm are behind the eight ball as far as the federal government and the state governments are concerned. Now, I live in California, as you know. The number one industry in California is not aerospace nor anything else. 
it is still farming. And yet the farmer has gotten kicked in the teeth again and again by Governor Jerry Brown and Ronald Reagan before him and just about everyone we have had hold the office of governor for a generation. His vote is not enough to matter very greatly. Even in the predominantly farm areas like the San Joaquin Valley, the cities tend to dominate the voting in the various counties. As a result, the farmer's vote simply no longer counts. And, of course, when the representation in the state legislature was no longer made by geography, that is, for each county, a senatorial representation in the state senate, but changed instead to a geographical one, it wiped out the ability of a geographical area to protect itself from marauding of its rights by the urban areas. Now, all this uh, leads up to something. We're going to face, unless there is a change within not too many years, a food crisis all over the world. Virtually every civil order in the world today is urban in its outlook. If it still has a rural population, it despises the rural population and feels that it has to be industrialized to be advanced. Every emerging country since World War II has taken that philosophy. And as a result, they are all creating a food crisis for themselves. So, unless there is a change in the not-too-distant future, food will be in short supply because the farmer will be wiped out. In not too many years... If things do not reverse themselves, the farmer will give up. He will go to the city. He will sell his land because he can make more from the interest on the land than he can farming his land. A very large percent of American farmers are now delinquent in their payments. So, we are in for trouble all over the world. Now to go on to a specific example. In our last session together, I mentioned a book about Japan, a very important one by Professor Makiso Hane, H-A-N-E, Peasants, Rebels, and Outcasts, The Underside of Modern Japan. This book was published by Pantheon Books in New York this year, 1982. Uh, Pantheon is a division of Random House. Makiso Hane is a professor of Japanese history at Knox College. He was born in California in 1922. He went to Japan in 1933 at the age of 11 and grew up in a peasant village in Hiroshima Prefecture. He returned to Japan in 1940 
only to be interned in a wartime detention camp soon thereafter. He has taught at Yale and is the author of Japan, an historical survey, among other works. Now, this book is very, very interesting. It is very well written, and it deals with an aspect of Japan from the time that Admiral Perry opened up Japan to World War II. Japan undertook a course of modernization, industrialization. This meant, of course, that it was not concerned about the peasant. And as a result, the peasant has suffered. The role of the peasant was never good in old Japan. It has not improved since. For example, he gives uh, this data on the Tokugawa background. The peasant holdings were very small, uh, just a couple of acres at the most, and very often smaller, uh, about 2.5. 45 hundredths acres. The peasant was required to turn over to the uh, landlord or the owner anywhere from 40 to 50 percent of his harvest as a land tax. Uh, this also included the uh, state. And as the economic needs of the ruling class increased, the collections amounted to as much as 70%. In addition to this land tax, which hit them, whether they were tenants or owners, there were a number of miscellaneous taxes, taxes on doors, on windows, on female children, cloth, sake, hazel trees, beans, and hemp. He was also required to provide a corvée to maintain roads, bridges, and other public facilities, as well as to repair horse stations along the main roads. As a result, very often in hard times, in the years of major famines, when the peasants were literally driven to starvation, there were uprisings. These were always put down brutally. Very often the peasants had to resort to cannibalism to survive. And the horrors are described by Professor Honey very plainly. The toll from starvation was very great. Sometimes only those who resorted to cannibalism survived. The result was that 
life in old Japan for the peasants was a horror. Now, it did not improve that much under modernization because the point Professor Hani brings out very clearly is that Japan has a caste system. The peasant is on the bottom level. We're all familiar with the outcasts of India, but even though I took Japanese history and particularly enjoyed it, and I, as a student, delighted in memorizing uh, the unusual names of some of the Japanese uh, rulers, uh, I recall particularly enjoying memorizing and studying about Nakatomi no Komitari of the Fujiwaras. I got an A-plus in the chorus at Berkeley. I never read about outcasts. But there is an outcast class in Japan, very much discriminated against. They're Japanese like all the rest, but they have been outcasts from time immemorial. Even to this day, when some of the outcasts have uh, gotten ahead, made money, gotten an education, become teachers, or even more, at times their origin is revealed when, for some reason or another, there's a probe into their background, perhaps to honor them or to promote them in some way and their outcast origin is revealed. Then, because they had concealed their past, and it was unknown to their wife or to their husband, disaster ensues. Sometimes the spouse commits suicide for shame. Professor Honey writes very movingly about these conditions and about the discrimination against the peasants. He feels, moreover, that a major source of that discrimination was not only the Japanese attitude, but the fact that the Western world was ready to buy some of the byproducts of that. Japan is very sensitive to criticism. The question of face is very important to the Japanese character. But when it comes to one of the byproducts of the peasant life, the necessity regularly to sell their daughters into prostitution, which prevailed until the end of World War II, Westerners consistently defended this practice and criticized those who took moralistic stands against it. Their attitude was that this was a charming and a quaint custom and the girls did it because it was a part of their loyalty to the family. And Arthur Kessler, for example, observed, quote, a militant Puritan spirit seems to have taken possession of a vocal minority of Japanese housewives. 
They demanded that the government abolish the age-old system of paid pleasure, and the city of the floating world was their target. Old guard sensualists fought in rage and bitterness to save the Oshiwara. But Puritanism had come in with TV, coke, and stretch pants. The nation was dedicated to jazz, floor shows, rock and roll, Levi's, and miniskirts, unquote. You can buy books. In fact, I saw one at a bookstore in the Bay Area recently about the glory of the floating world. But it was a bitter, ugly fact. The peasant families who sold their daughters did not see it as a normal thing. It was a painful, horrifying fact, a matter of considerable grief. Sometimes the girl who had been sold would come back for a visit. But that was painful too because she could introduce all kinds of corrupting practices and diseases into the family and into the neighborhood. Some of the girls maintained a feeling of despairing loyalty to the family. Many of them, in time, were worn out with bitterness and pessimism. Moreover, the sales were vicious to the nth degree, because while the sales were for a supposedly reasonable amount, everyone took their cut. So the poor family facing starvation and selling their daughter seldom got as much as 100 yens in advance because everyone involved in the transaction took part in it. Well, thank God that's been abolished. It is interesting that Professor Honey, who does not say anything about his politics or his religion, tells us only two groups ever concerned themselves with this issue, and many, many other like in issues concerning the degradation in which the peasants and the outcasts lived. These were the intellectuals influenced by Marxism, and the Christians. And he says the Christians did much to aid the urban slum dwellers as well as the peasantry. Moreover, he says that the Christians not only did something about what was taking place there in Japan, but they followed the girls into places like Singapore and elsewhere to work to rescue these girls. He says, and I quote, to justify this practice, the society played up the sacrifice of the daughters as an exemplary manifestation of filial piety. The ethos of the society conditioned the girls into believing that it was their duty as daughters to become prostitutes to aid their families. 
national political leaders did nothing to change this situation. A few advocates of uh, westernization, like Tsuda Mamichi, 1829-1902, were early critics of publicly sanctioned brothels, but they got little support from the main body of westernizers or even from the champions of popular rights. And yet the Christians did a great deal everywhere in their efforts to rescue as many of these girls as possible. In doing so, they had to face the hostility of Westerners who romanticized the brothels and the whole system of prostitution and saw the Christians, Japanese and missionary, as uh, killjoy prudes who interfered with the system. Today, the plight of the a peasant farmer is no better. The Japanese government takes a protectionist attitude towards its manufacturers because it is concerned with increasing power through industrialization. It does not take a like protectionist attitude towards its peasantry. In fact, their heavy taxes continue. At the same time, they face competition from American rice growers. California rice is competing. That's an interesting fact, by the way. Most governments around the world will protect industry, but not farming to the same degree. One element in American agriculture which has been the subject of a great deal of federal hostility is your cattleman. The cattleman is the most independent, the one element of the economy that fought after the end of World War II. Any kind of subsidy. As a result, foreign beef is not required to go through the inspection processes that American beef is required to go through. American beef can compete with beef from abroad. If that beef has to be as disease-free as American beef is required to be. We have two standards a very lax one for foreign beef and a very tight one for American. Thus, with that kind of competition, with the hostility of the federal government to the really one last independent sector of the American economy, the situation is not good. In this county, by the way, there used to be quite a few uh, cattlemen. There is only one, I am told, who still makes an income strictly from cattle. All the others run cows as a sideline while they work at something else. Between taxes 
and the high cost of everything, they can no longer make it on cattle. So it adds up to a bleak picture. And the situation is no better in Britain or anywhere else. In the Western countries, let me restate this. The productivity of the farmer has gone up. His numbers have gone down in most countries. And he no longer has any political power and is the target of discrimination. Dr. Hani has written a very important book, and I've just touched on one aspect of it. It is highly readable. Now to go on very briefly to something else. I thought this was an interesting note. It is from Sir William Petty, Treatise of Taxes and Contributions, an English publication of 1667. That's more than three centuries ago. And Sir William Petty justified any kind of taxation and control on gambling in these words, discussing lotteries in particular. And I quote, A lottery is a tax upon unfortunate, self-conceited fools. Because the world abounds with this kind of fool, it is not fit that every man that will may cheat every man that would be cheated. But it is ordained that the sovereign should have the guardianship of these fools, or that some favorite should beg the sovereign's right of taking advantage of such men's folly. Unquote. And a very interesting point. In other words, anyone who gambles is a fool, and it's the privilege of the state to make suckers out of gamblers. Now to another very interesting book published in 1981 by Holt, Reinhardt, and Winston in the Reader's Digest Press in New York, The Terror Network, The Secret War of International Terrorism by Claire Sterling, S-T-E-R-L-I-N-G. The book was published at 1395. Miss Sterling is a liberal. She admits at the very beginning that her natural disposition was to see terrorism as something done by the right, and that the left is the noble and innocent cause. She has been over 30 years a foreign correspondent, and in that time has covered a good many of the trials of the terrorists. And she confesses that she realizes now that terror is a virtual monopoly of the left. That it is most brutal. That it is criminal and murderous. She quotes a member of Italia, Italy's uh, Red Brigades. You think it's absurd that I should, should go out and shoot a man just because I'm ordered to? That's your bourgeois mentality. 
Don't you think it's absurd that you're ordered to go out and write an article? Now, in this book, she covers a number of the European countries, country by country. She describes exactly what is taking place and its Soviet control and financing. The facts she digs up, as she points out, are from trials. They're thoroughly documented. And yet, just before she published this book, the Carter administration chose to deny to her that there was any international terrorist network and conspiracy or that there was any evidence that the Soviet Union controlled it. There was a radical evasion everywhere of the facts concerning the terror network. She describes its workings very clearly, very plainly. And the thing that is especially telling is that she lets you know who is responsible. She says, now mind you, she's a liberal. And she quotes Dostoevsky. Dostoevsky's The Possessed. And she feels that Dostoevsky in that book got to the terrorist mentality and that it is as relevant today as it was when it was written. And she quotes Dostoevsky's Peter Verhovensky as telling his little band of terrorists that they have nothing to worry about, that although as an organized group they are a small minority, they actually have the majority of the people on their side. How? Every teacher who ridicules God and biblical faith to his or her students is on the side of the terrorists. Every person who is indifferent to what is going on because it hasn't affected him, every official of the state who is not going to be bothered because it is not in his department, these and everyone else contribute to the power of the terrorists because they create a climate of indifference and terrorism thrives on that climate of indifference. Claire Sterling has done an excellent job in this book and it's the most telling one. Now, very briefly to another book, uh, Rebel, a biography of Tom Paine by Samuel Edwards, published by Prager, P-R-A-E-G-E-R, -E -E in New York, in 1974, but I believe it's now out of print. The book is one of the most honest written about Paine. Paine came over to this country 
just in time to write some pamphlets that had a tremendous impact on the colonies. Everyone was moving towards independence, and some in England, astute observers, had predicted ten years before that the natural interest of the colonies would separate them from a repressive crown. As a result of those pamphlets, Payne did gain the respect of Americans. He lost it subsequently as his radical beliefs became apparent. But the thing that is clear here is that Edwards does face openly the militantly anti-Christian character of Payne and is ready to face up to the question, was Payne mad? He does not attempt to give a verdict on that, but does deal with the man's radical mental instability. He does touch on, he doesn't go into it much, no writer has done this, the tragic aspect of Payne's life that led to disaster in France for him and disillusioned Americans of him. Payne had a fondness for very young girls. He regularly sought poor girls and prostitutes who were in their teens and progressively went downward in age as time advanced. As a result, Payne became... Uh, very much disliked by Americans who still had, in those days, very much a Puritan temper. He has been lionized in recent years by many liberals. But this is a more balanced account, although it is far from being as critical as possible, and he barely touches on Payne's mental instability and his Lolita complex. Now, let us go on to something very different. I'm almost hesitant about dealing with this, but I'm very grateful to one of our very finest friends, Anne Strapini, for letting me know of this book. It is supposedly a novel written by James Roosevelt, the son of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, with Sam Toporoff. The title is A Family Matter, published by Simon & Schuster in New York in 1980 for $11.95. If anyone else but James Roosevelt had written this book, it would be dismissed as uh, garbage, as weird, as preposterous, as fiction. But because his name is on it, it has to be treated very seriously. 
and I am amazed that no one in Congress has asked him to come and answer some hard questions about it. There is nothing fictional about the book. It begins with the Tehran Conference and ends with Roosevelt's death and with Truman taking office. All the way through it is concerned with the atomic bomb. The effort to develop it, the espionage concerning it, and the negotiations with Stalling. What Roosevelt says in this supposed novel is that Roosevelt, very early, unbeknownst to Churchill, told Stalin that an atomic weapon was being developed of tremendous power, one that would make other weapons obsolete by comparison. He then offered to give the atomic weapon to the Soviet Union, the plans, everything, in return for Soviet assistance in setting up a United Nations organization and working therein. This exchange was made. James Roosevelt personally took the plans and gave them to Stalin. In the process, however, General Groves learned of the existence of a spy ring and faced bitter hostility from many of the scientists because they felt with Fuchs, Sobel, Rosenberg, and others he was interfering with their work. The spy ring and its existence, the names of the people, was entirely known. But Roosevelt did not allow anything to be done about it, according to this book. His thesis was that it was important for Stalin to get an independent verification that the plans he gave through James Roosevelt were accurate. So let the spies steal the secrets and let Stalin see that what his spies have given him and what I have given him through you are identical. Now, according to this book, James Roosevelt was watched at every stage of this by General Groves' intelligence man, and that they let him know they knew what he was doing and even photographed him in the process and gave him a copy of the photograph to let him know they knew. Now, my question is, why in the world would James Roosevelt write a book in which he figures as a traitor? Of course, he does not see it as such. The title of Family Matter was the code word between James Roosevelt, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and Stalin. 
with regard to the exchange of the atomic weapons plans in return for the Soviet cooperation in the United Nations organization. James Roosevelt is still living, I believe, in uh, Santa Monica, California. But no one has asked a question about this book and the book published by a reputable publisher, Simon and Schuster, has not gained any public attention to my knowledge. Uh, by the way, it's not Santa Monica. It's Newport Beach, California, that he now resides in. Well, it's a remarkable book. If anyone else had said this about Roosevelt, other than Roosevelt himself, he would be put down as a slanderer. But Roosevelt has said it. Now to another thing entirely. J.C. Holt, an English scholar, has written a book entitled simply Robin Hood, published at 1795 by Thames and Hudson, an English publisher with offices also in the United States. It's not... Uh, Too very interesting unless you are interested in the subject of the Robin Hood story, which I am. The point that uh, Professor Holt makes is that there probably was a real person, a real Robin Hood. Whether by that name or another, we do not know. He was not from the time of uh, Richard. Uh, the Lionhearted, but a little later. He was not of the Anglo-Saxon uh, lower nobility or yeoman classes against the Normans. That was added much later. He was not given to robbing the rich and helping the poor. That social emphasis came much later. At the time, he was simply an outlaw who was apparently doing a thriving business, probably because the people were ready to see anybody who had money get knocked off. He became a popular hero. It is interesting that the first three to record anything about Robin Hood were Scots, not Englishmen. But the book is interesting because the fact is Robin Hood, as he points out, has changed his character with each generation. He has at times been a hero of the common man, at other times a hero of uh, Anglo-Saxons as against the... Uh, Normans, at other times a champion of justice against uh, legal lynch law, and so on. He's changed colors a great many times. So 
it's uh, very interesting. As the author points out, any time a criminal becomes famous, there are people who will make him a folk hero because they enjoy seeing somebody at the top get knocked off by saying he robbed the rich to give to the poor, like Jesse James. Nobody ever came up with any poor man that Jesse James helped, although there are a couple of tales about that, and none really uh, fully documented. But the railroad was very unpopular in Jesse James' day, and banks were unpopular, and if you knocked off a bank or if you knocked off uh, the railroad, good. You were very much appreciated. Now another little item. Phil Spielman sent me again some very interesting material. And this one item from uh, Harry Schultz's book. Uh, some excellent information in it, but uh, I'd like to quote this because there is an error here as well as a very good point. He says, and I'm quoting Schultz, the world today is very different from the 1929 to 32 era, so that should a crash of the same magnitude happen again, it will take a different form, a very different form. Let me explain. Because of the effect of the computer in increasing productivity, economies can now support high percentages of non-productive workers without sliding into recession. For economic purposes, a government employee is the same as an unemployed person. At the moment, in the United States, 15% of Americans work for government. Now, apart from the Big Brother aspect of having one watchdog for every six Americans, which is terrifying, if you then add the current unemployment figures to that, the percentage of people living off the taxpayer's money in the United States is currently running over 20%. The last time unemployment was over 20% was in the 1929 to 32 era. And the government wasn't even providing welfare, yet the economy collapsed. Yet we are currently in a relatively prosperous condition with over 20% of the population not producing and being supported by the rest." Unquote. Well, I won't go into his argument there at all, but I'd like to comment on some of the data. We, to the best of my knowledge, do not include in the list of those unemployed those who are on welfare. So, you see, you have to say the cost is much greater when you add those on welfare. Moreover, uh, Schultz speaks of 1929 to 32 as the peak of the Depression, and that's radically an error. In 1929, now I'm, I'm, I believe I'm roughly correct on these figures, a million and a half were unemployed. That's all. In 1931, we passed the Smoot-Hawley Tariff, and the minute we passed that protectionist act, 
supposedly to help American industry, foreign trade collapsed because who could trade with us if they couldn't sell to us? And unemployment doubled almost at once to three million. Then when Roosevelt took over, it started to skyrocket. By 36, 1936, it was 13 million. So when you're talking about depression, you're not talking about Hoover. You're talking about Franklin Delano Roosevelt and the New Deal, which created it. The depression was relatively mild. And it was Roosevelt's policies that aggravated it and made it into a major disaster and helped create a worldwide catastrophe. And the Democrats had a hand in the disaster of the Smoot-Hawley Tariff Act. So, going back to 31, you have to say the Democratic Party had a major hand in the Depression. The Republican Party didn't do much their economics was no longer free market, but they were not so bad as the Democrats. Hoover himself had uh, many of the same ideas that Roosevelt did, but he didn't believe in using the federal power. Well, now on to something else. Dorothy and I were reading yesterday in a book on John Donne and His World by Derek Parker published also by Thames and Hudson in London in 1975. And it revived our interest again in rereading some of Dunn's poetry. Dunn's poetry, of course, is of two kinds, those that are uh, very sensuous love poems, and then his religious poetry, and Dunn is one of the more interesting poets of English literature. He has at times been very much neglected and rele relegated to the role of a very minor, minor poet. And other times been seen by others as virtually a major poet. One of his poems, I think, very familiar to most people, is his holy sonnet, Death Be Not Proud. These were written, by the way, when he was quite ill. Death be not proud, though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. For those whom thou thinkest thou dost overthrow, die not, poor death nor yet canst thou kill me. From rest and sleep, which but thy pictures be much pleasure, then from thee much more must flow, and soonest our best men with thee do go, rest of our bones and souls delivery. Thou art slave to fate, chance, kings, and desperate men, and dost with poison, war, and sickness dwell, and poppy or charms can make us sleep as well and better than thy stroke. Why swellest thou then? One short sleep past we wake eternally, 
and death shall be no more. Death, thou shalt die. Then another batter my heart, three-personed God, for you as yet but knock, breathe, shine, and seek to mend, that I may rise and stand, or throw me and bend your force to break, blow, burn, and make me new. I, like an usurped town to another, do labor to admit you. But, oh, to no end, reason your viceroy and me, me should defend, but is captive, and proves weak or untrue. Yet, dearly, I love you, and would be loved fain, but am betrothed unto your enemy. Divorce me, untie or break that knot again, take me to you, imprison me, for I accept you, enthrall me, never shall be free nor ever chased, except you ravish me. Then still another. Salvation to all that will is nigh. That all which always is all everywhere, which cannot sin and yet all sins must bear, which cannot die yet cannot choose but die. Lo, faithful virgin yields himself to lie in prison in thy womb. And though he there can take no sin nor thou give, yet he'll wear taken from thence flesh, which death's force may try. Ere by the spears time was created, Thou wast in his mind, who is thy son and brother, whom thou conceivest conceived, yet thou art now thy maker's maker, and thy father's mother. Thou hast light in dark, and shudderest in little room, immensity cloistered in thy dear womb. Well, our time is nearly up. I'd like to share a couple of uh, things from you. There is in China, according to reports from Christian sources, a tremendous crackdown on Western influences. They blame the influence of the West for undermining the revolutionary fervor of the youth. And the tourists, they feel, have been a corrupting influence. They're going to go on welcoming them and using them for propaganda purposes. But they are very upset uh, because these people are influencing young people who like to sport Western sunglasses and T-shirts and listen to pop music from Hong Kong. One of the things that has been banned immediately has been social dancing, even in private parties. Then agents have been ordered to spy on the churches, and because the churches are to a degree controlled by the state, house churches have become very commonplace for some years in Red China. And now there is a very real persecution underway for all house churches. They are continuing to worship, but for many of the groups of house churches, 
this is limiting their ability to uh, evangelize in the neighborhood. They could only move sl slowly, lest they be uh, known to the authorities and destroyed. Well, our time is up. I have enjoyed this session with you again and am looking forward to our next visit and the pile of materials that I keep accumulating to share with you. Thank you for listening.